Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ackroyd is not really a country squire. He is an immensely successful manufacturer of, I think, wagon wheels. He is a man of nearly 50 years of age, rubicund of face and genial of manner. He is hand and glove with the vicar, subscribes liberally to the parish funds, though rumour has it that he is extremely mean in personal expenditure. Encourages cricket matches, lads clubs and disabled soldiers institutes. He is, in fact, the life and soul of our peaceful village of King's Abbot. Encourages cricket matches. Very good. Yeah, not golf. No. Shame you had to go, really, isn't it? Uh, Welcome back to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books, presented by me... Lloyd Shepherd and you, Tim Wright. Hello, I'm Tim Wright, and this is part two of our adventure based on the murder of Roger Ackroyd, not the death of Roger. Ackroyd. Not the death of Roger Ackroyd, the although his by, death is implied. Yes, <laughs> by Agatha Christie. By Agatha Christie, published and in 1926. 1926, um, and we think uh, the book is based in 1926. We think uh, it is based in 1926, which we'll come on to. We've gone in search of King's Abbot, the village, the we peaceful have. village, thinking that it's obviously it's a fictional place, but this is our job here at the Curiously Specific Book Club, is to not take writers on face value and say, when they say they've made something up, have they really made it have up? Have they really made have it up? Really to what extent have they made it up? Exactly. And this has brought us to the town of Cheadle. Cheadle. Just south of Manchester. In North Cheshire, just uh, right before you get to the Mersey on the boundary of Cheshire and Lancashire. Yes, and it and and it's full of uh, halls, full of um, manufacturers of wheels. Yeah. We discover uh, men of men who've made made good of themselves through private enterprise. Well, it's it's either textiles, yeah, uh, or it's uh, trains. It's the two things. Of, there are toffs in this book, is it? Everyone. No, is, they're uh, all self-made men. Well, yeah. actually, they're they're the grandchildren of Victorian plutocrats, yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. So they're, they're, all these houses around Cheadle, all these halls, are, are built in the 1850s, 1860s out of textile money or train money. Yeah. And uh, Or, actually, in one case... Oh, no, I think he was a train man, but he, um, he was the um, founding president of a, a, a small football club called Manchester United. He wasn't the founding president. He, uh, he bought Newton Heath. 
Oh, okay. Which was what was mentioned. I didn't change its name. Yeah. Moved it and changed its name. But he lived so in you a... could say the funny prison, I suppose, in some yeah, ways. exactly. So yeah. I have. I just have. You just have, and I corrected you and then took back my correction. Oh, so well you, done. You're sounding very much like a Manchester United fan at that oh. point. Correcting me how, and then taking back your How cliched of you to be <laughs> making that remark. Anyway, let's uh, stop talking about this now, and let's go back to Cheadle. Yes. Because Roger Ackroyd lives in a house called Fernley Park. He does. Which is described in a great deal of detail in the book, obviously. Well, there's a map. There's a floor uh, map. There's a floor map because of, uh, to, to, as part of the story, you have to understand how do people get from room A to room B. It's actually a Cluedo map, isn't it? It pretty much yeah. is. There's a study, a dining room. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And there's a dagger in the study, basically. There is a dagger in the study. Yeah. Um, we're going to a place called Abney Hall, which is just just north of Cheadle, just outside the edge of the village. Yes. Um, it's where Agatha Christie's sister, Madge, Punky... Punky Live, we said it together. Live with her husband, James Watts. Yes. Um, li- wish I could live like Madge Watts. Um, and, uh, wish I could live like Madgey yeah, Watts. That was, that was the wish reference. Could live like that, Madgy wish Watts. I could live like Punky Watts. There we go. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. It was just a few minutes before half past seven when I rang the front doorbell of Fernley Park. The door was opened with admirable promptitude by Parker, the butler. The night was such a fine one that I had preferred to come on foot. I stepped into the big square hall and Parker relieved me of my overcoat. Just then Ackroyd's secretary, a pleasant young fellow by the name of Raymond, passed through the hall on his way to Ackroyd's study, his hands full of papers. Good evening, Doctor. Coming to dine? Or is this a professional call? Well... It is a very much a professional visit, but not of the type you're thinking of, Raymond. It's good the butler's called Parker, isn't it? Oh, my lady Parker. Yes, my lady. Yes, my lady. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Shepherd. That's a reference that many young people listening to our podcast won't get. The young people listening to our podcast? Yeah, that one. If you're out there, <laughs> put the phone down, turn it off, and go and go out with your friends. We are sitting outside Abney Hall. Abney Hall, we've made it. In Cheadle, um, which, uh, we'll describe it first, it's enormous. I mean, it's a big old gothic pile. It's great, Red brick, iron windows, bit of stained glass. Loads of chimneys. Lots and lots of chimneys. More chimneys than I think are strictly necessary. Yeah. Um, It's probably got, I don't know, 12, 14 bedrooms and the same 10 servants' quarters and... It's massive. It's a big, big old place. It is. We are convinced, I think, that A, this book is set in Cheadle. We're getting there. The King's Abbot is Cheadle. Uh, we're also convinced, I think, that Fernley Park, which is the name of the house that Roger Ackroyd owns, is is co-located with Abney Hall. It's in the right place. It's the right size park. We walked from the Larches, from Dr. Shepherd's house. Yep. Took exactly ten minutes. Exactly ten exactly minutes. Exactly ten minutes. It's too good not to be true. Um, so it's all, location-wise, it's all absolutely perfect, but the house is too big. It's way too big. Because there's a map in the book, isn't there? Yeah. Of the house, and the house is actually quite self-contained. It's got a drawing room, a dining room, a study, and, and a billiard room on the ground floor. That's it, isn't it? Four yeah, rooms. yeah. And um, it has French... It has French windows. windows going out onto the terrace. So that he can creep in there. There are no French windows on this house at all. No. This house was built before such fripperies were tolerated. It would be quite hard to climb in through that window, actually. Yeah. If, if I wanted to get speculative for, for a moment, because I can imagine... So Agatha Christie's sister did live here. 
for yeah. a long time. Agatha did come here at least twice a year, yes. all the way through her teens. But if I was to get speculative, I think she's thinking of her family home in Devon, Ashfield, which is much more the right sort of size of house yes, okay. for Ackroyd. does have French windows. It's much more kind of summery. I mean, why would you have French windows here? I mean, you're not looking out on... <laughs> it's the northwest. <laughs> you know, I'm just going out for a walk. Oh, no, I'm coming back in. It's raining. It's yeah, just started and it raining. It is raining. <laughs> it suddenly um, started raining. It's well just done. suddenly started raining as I was you doing You summoned that. the rain. So uh, I hope all our electronics survives the uh, onslaught. So I think she's thinking of something like Ashfield. Or the alternative would be she's modelled it more on uh, on Cheadle Hall. Well, they had a, the outline on the park yeah, there. Which is much more the, the right sort of size. Yeah, see, that, that did seem a, a, to accord more with the map yeah. that's but, in the book. But in terms of the location and the park around it, it's perfect. But, uh, yeah, great house. Come here. It's, a, it's really impressive. You can't you go in the house, sadly. No, it's now used as a business or service business. I phoned we were them quite up. Ho- you did, didn't you? Go on, tell the story. Sorry. Well, I phoned them up because I was uh, thinking what would be good was, since it's a business centre, they might rent out meeting rooms. Yeah. And if there was, a, it would be rather good if we had a, the meeting room that was the study. We could restage the murder. Well, and also it would be, we could have a meeting where I could say to you, "Well, I've gathered everyone here together, you, Shepherd, <laughs> to discuss." And I put it to you, <laughs> the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's and um, uh, I could say to you things like, um, "Did you just move that chair?" <laughs> well, you could go out, and then I can move the chair, and you can come in again and go. Something's changed. Why have you moved the chair? Why have you moved the chair? Yeah, and then I could leave a recording of me talking. Yeah, well, we could do it on our on our voice memos. <laughs> this on is phones. a recording of me talking. James Shepard, je vous arrête pour le meurtre de Roger Ackroyd. C'est vous qui le dites, inspecteur principal. James, ne faites pas ça. C'est de la folie. The murder of Roger Ackroyd is unique in the way the narrator's lie by omission conceals the most important fact of the story. Since the watertight barrier between the world of the text and the world that surrounds it has vanished, there is every reason to wonder whether other events are not also being concealed from us. From then on, the world of the work is no longer limited to its statements, but extends well beyond them. This is all the more so as we have seen, because this novel merely exemplifies in caricature a phenomenon involving the whole narrative of the detective thriller, namely the narrator's bad faith. Well, I'm glad you lapsed into bad French accent Thank you very at the end much. of that, because that was actually not a quote, obviously, from <laughs> The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. That was a quote from a book called Who Killed Roger Ackroyd by Pierre Bayard. A French academic. Yeah, great book. Uh, really amazing book. <laughs> Very amazing book. You knew about it. I got it out of the library. We're both obsessed with it now. <laughs> so this is going to be very plot spoilery, listener. Yeah, watch out. Please, uh, if, you, if, if, if you've been born with us so far and haven't read the book yet and you intend to, yeah. don't read this bit. That's right. Because we're about to basically tell you who done it. Well, well, or who, who done it? Who, who, who supposedly who, done it? Who the French? Who the French think did it? So the re- <laughs> so the the reason that uh, Roger Ackroyd is is so famous as a book is yes. obviously that the uh, the the big reveal at the end is that the murderer is also the narrator. That's right, Doctor Shepherd. 
That's right, shepherd. Wrong and because he spells shepherd wrong. That's that's revealed at the end of the book as being the whole thing has been him describing a process in which he's actually been the main protagonist, mm. and he's also the one who was blackmailing Mrs. Ferrers. He uh, he his money's all gone on bad investments. Yeah, um, and in Mrs. Ferrers is about field. to expose him, and that's why he kills Roger Ackroyd before the letter that Mrs. Ferrers has written. Very good to Ackroyd can be uh, exposed. Mm. Now, <laughs> that's that's the. Should we say the traditional reading of this book? Yes, although and shocking at the time, a lot of people were like, yeah. um, either they loved it or that a lot of people just really hated it. Well, a lot this of is a massive said, betrayal. A lot of, the, of people of said the genre. she was cheating. Yeah, a yeah. lot of people said she was cheating. Yeah. Well, it's interesting it. to think of it in its time as well. That if you've read, if you've read three of her novels and you're into into Agatha Christie oh. and Hercule Poirot, and then this one turns up and it, and it doesn't. It's not written. Most of the other three are written by Hastings. Yeah. A reliable narrator, right? And and it's definitely clear that she that there's a sort of allusion to him being a sort of Doctor Watson to Poirot's. That's right. Uh, she's playing with the Sherlock former. Holmes, so she's, she's playing with so the former, clever. right? So then, obviously, then this book comes on. You go, oh, it's not by Hastings. There's a new narrator, and he is a doctor. He's a doctor. Yeah. yeah. So he is Doctor Watson. Trusted. Yeah, we trusted yeah, and, and they're uh, thinking they're thinking you know, maybe he, this is going to be the new exactly, partner from exactly, going forward, exactly. No. And then pulls the rug then she right pulls the out, rug right out from underneath. Yeah, you. yeah. Now that kind of messing about with form uh, and structure has attracted particular attention from a particular <laughs> constituency. Well, do you know French, the first note? French academic, yeah, French academic. Well, not just French, but that idea that basically the text. Is not to be trusted. Yeah. Well, it's almost. I, I think they're doing her an enormous. Uh, I mean, I think this book is written quite tongue in cheek, the Bayard book. But he mentions Bart. I mean, Roland Bart was a huge fan. Well, of let me give you the thing. note. It says here this book has been discussed notably by Roland Bart, Gérard Jeunette, Julien Grémin, and Umberto Eco, yeah. as well as by Raymond Chandler, Alain Robrier, and on the eve of his death, Georges Perec was writing an article on the subject. So it killed him. It killed <laughs> did Perec. Did he get stabbed in the neck by a uh, silver dagger? Um, but it's, they, I think they do Agatha Christie an enormous, um, pay her an enormous compliment because they basically say, he's making the argument in this book that she's messing with you guys. Yeah. She's messing with your head. Yeah. Uh, and basically he goes through all the rules, you know, how detective fiction works. We won't mm. go through it all now. It's worth a read if, you, if you're into this stuff. Mm. But he basically says the, the main thing that detective fiction does is it keeps things from you as yes. the reader. It's, he calls it the uh, omission. omission. So you can't you can't see everything. So there's a couple of moments where Dr. Shepard says things like, uh, I closed the door five minutes later, I'd done all that could be done. Yeah. He doesn't tell you what went on in that five minutes. So he makes great play with that. Yeah. So, but basically, he, his argument is, is that if the, if the writer is admitting some things, she could be admitting anything. Right, ah. so anything could be off off the table. Yeah. And all these characters have lives outside the narrative. Yes. And she's not telling you about them. Yeah. So what are they doing outside the narrative? And he makes and this is this is very plot spoiler again because I'm not we're not now this is how meta we're getting. We're not just going to plot spoil the murder of Roger Ackroyd. We're also going to plot spoil <laughs> who killed Roger Ackroyd. Yes. Because he makes a I think very convincing case that you can make the narrative work by having a and to have a completely different killer. Yes, and the reason... Well, and then he goes on. I, I was very interested. He goes into a lot of Freudian stuff about delusion. About psychoanalysis. About could, delusion. I have to say, I didn't deluded really understand that stuff. Oh, well, I got... Well, he talks about Poirot being deluded, Well, that's he? the point, is he's saying that, that basically Poirot has a, is, is in a state of delusion where he reorders 
uh, stuff to suit his own narrative. Yeah. And then the, the interesting thing is that then he says, why is it that Dr. Shepard then accepts Poirot's delusion well, and, uh, and, and admits guilt? There is a motive for him accepting the delusion yeah. if the real murderer yep. is Caroline Shepard. His sister. His sister. Yes. And I have to say that you know the, the section where he talks through how that could have happened is very, very plausible. Well, I like the fact... And you he, kind of go, actually, this might have made a better book. He's, he's very... Uh, obviously, he's one of us, the curiosity specific, yeah. because one of the things he does do is he charts out Dr. Shepard's day on the day of the yes. murder. And and uh, and, uh, and all the stuff it, he has to do. Well, it's mainly the thing about work. that he's got this dictaphone that's on a... Uh, on a remote control. On a remote yeah. timer, on a timer. Yeah. And he would have had to sort of wire up... From the decision to murder Roger, Roger yeah. Ackroyd to then doing it, he would have had to have had, had at least half an hour if not more to rig up a dictaphone because he has to do it all in uh, one day doesn't he because yeah. then he finds out about the letter on the exactly. morning of the uh, and he's saying so where is it during that working day yeah. that he has time to go home and rig up a, a timer for yeah. the dictaphone yeah and he and he, he can't find it but the person who knows everything that's going on in the village and sees everything yeah um, is caroline shepherd that's right so um and she knows that he's a blackmailer it's so she, she kills Roger I found myself and then well, he kills himself because he doesn't want her to get I uh, yeah she's protecting him and he's protecting her That's yeah, the, yeah it's very very it's cool it's very very cool it's a very good idea and I almost wonder a very different book the one thing he never does is say uh, Agatha Christie made a mistake no his, his implication is all the way through that this was a deliberate that she's ploy yeah that she's and she's playing with Poirot Yes, you know, that's which I love that idea that yeah, she's messing she, with Poirot's head. I because I, I take this one step further. The one chapter he didn't write was to say, "Well, all right then." So, if if it means that all the characters have a life outside of the the bits you know about, hmm. that means that all the characters in all the books have a life outside, don't they? They're all. And if you match up the, if you do what we do, yeah. where you know where everybody is all the time. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a character from this book, does it? <laughs> okay, who are you thinking of? Well, I, I'm happy to think that on May the 12th, 1926, yeah. Max de Winter kills his wife. <laughs> and then he goes into he goes travelling. He does. Yeah. Does he go north? <laughs> he led me down a path to the left, enclosed in yew hedges. A walk led down the middle, bordered each side with formal flower beds, and at the end was a round paved recess with a seat and a pond of goldfish. Instead of pursuing the path to the end, Poirot took another, which wound up the side of a wooded slope. In one spot the trees had been cleared away and a seat had been put. Sitting there one had a splendid view over the countryside and wandered right down on the paved recess in the goldfish pond. England is very beautiful, said Poirot his eyes straying over the prospect. Then he smiled. And so are English girls, he said in a lower voice. Ash, my friend, and look at the pretty picture below us. It was then that I saw Flora. She was moving along the path we had just left, and she was humming a little snatch of song. Oh, Parker! <laughs> <laughs> so, my friend, we have found a little patch of trees above a goldfish pond, may we? Nespa? <laughs> I'm meant to sound like Dr. Shepherd now, isn't it? Well, where uh, are we? Once again, we're, we're standing on a wooded slope looking down at a goldfish pond. A big old pond. A it's definitely pond. a formal pond, isn't it, that one? A definitely man made pond. Yeah, yeah. Because on the other side of us, the other side of the wooded slope is a kind of water marsh where the uh, Chalton Brook 
has overflowed because it's been very wet recently. Um, so this is more of a, a, a formal pond, I would say. You can hear the motorway. It does have a path going down one side of it, another path going up a wooded slope. Yes. And behind us is a cleared area. Avec un bench, mon ami. It's extraordinary, right? Yeah. It's extraordinary. We're in, the, we're in the grounds of... We're still, in, we're still at Abney Hall. We're in the grounds. We're in the grounds. And um, in the book, and there's a scene where Prior and Shepherd uh, uh, overhear a conversation between Flora and Hector Blunt. The, the big, big game, game hunter, hunter. Uh, and you just re- you just tested this because there was a, a couple of small children with their mother talking as they walked along the path, and you could hear what they're saying. Despite what you may be able to hear on this, is the hum of the huge amount of traffic. The M60, which is very close. Yeah, yeah. So I rather creepily stood up here and overheard the conversation between well, children. There was nothing creepy about it, not at all. <laughs> Two men standing in the woods with staring recording devices, up, staring down, staring at down at young mothers and their children. <laughs> If we get out of here unarrested, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> Nothing suspicious at all. Let's hope nobody gets murdered today. <laughs> <laughs> the podcasters did it. It's, um, it's just perfect. It's perfect. It's, Again, it's perfect. Well, it's another example of where you're sort of in the writer's head a bit when you mm. start doing this, and you're thinking, so she, she, she comes to stay around here, she mm. must wander around the garden, mm. she sits on a bench with her notepad... And she starts thinking, right? Mm. Oh, this is an interesting scene. Mm. I can definitely use this. Do you know what I mean? Well, one of the things I didn't say when we were sat outside the hall, she, she did say that she wasn't massively keen on Abney Hall because she found it all a bit dark. Well, she went there at Christmas every time, so she didn't yeah. go in the summer, did she? She, just, she had a very good... <laughs> she stayed in Torquay for the summer. In Loosely Worsley's book, she's got a very good description of it. Abney, <laughs> Abney wrote Agatha, had passages, unexpected steps, back staircases front staircases alcoves niche niches everything in the world everything in the world that a child could want all it lacked was the light of day it was remarkably dark agatha described its style as best victorian lavatory <laughs> that's good isn't it yeah i mean these grounds are huge as well though right yeah I mean, Amazing really pile. really big and this is only part of it because obviously a lot of it was then seconded by the motorway my sense is that she's taken everything and just shrunk it down a bit in the book you know the house is smaller I think the grounds are a bit smaller yeah. the goldfish pond is a bit smaller it's all a little bit more human scale than yes. this place which is gigantic but it's all in the right location yeah, and also in terms of just where a person is vis-a-vis another person as it were absolutely about how they spy on each it's, other exactly. and hear things all, it's and all the right it all works in, a gossipy, all a, in a gossipy place it's all a little bit too where big where I saw you down at the pond yeah, yeah, yeah. talking to so and so now uh, right behind you by the way that is a yew tree there's quite a lot of yew trees down, along down there so again again I think she's thought she's, it's, the yew trees are a very definite detail aren't they it's close and the way she that. describes the path forking into one going up the hill that and one going around the pond works perfectly yeah what I'm starting to get is that business that she's found places of, of observation where you can stand or sit and see a lot of stuff going on, like on the village green and look at, just have a look around, see who's moving where. That she's got a good sense of how to keep an eye on everyone. And because she was so much younger than her siblings, you imagine she spent quite a lot of time on her own watching and listening. And yeah, and then that idea that there's notes. lots of li- nice little dark recesses and where you just sit and hide in there and see who goes yeah. past and then you can hear what the grown-ups are saying in the hallway yeah. without them knowing you're it's there. It's quite an interesting position for a writer to take, isn't it? The observer. The secret observer. The secret observer. And the unreliable narrator. Well, it's what Miss... See why Mar- the French like it. Well, it's what Miss Marple is as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That she's aware of everything going on around her village. Well, I suppose the other interesting thing about Miss Marple is that she's invisible because of her age, but in the same way that Agatha as a child was invisible because of her age. Yeah, no one yeah. saw her, so she just watched and listened. Nice. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So the book is set in 1926. How do we know that, Tim? First paragraph. First paragraph. First paragraph. This is how specific Agatha Christie is. I I love it. She actually says that Mrs. Ferrers died on Thursday, the 16th of September, Mm -hmm. and that Peter... uh, Peter Ackroyd? Peter Ackroyd. And Peter Ackroyd, yeah. He, he... Well, there's another character wandering in from another book. <laughs> We've done two Ackroyds now. I only just realised that. Yeah. Ackroyd dies on Friday, the 17th of September. When you look at the calendar, yeah. that can only be either 1920 what? or 1926. Mm-hmm. And it can't be 1920 for things that we'll come on well, to. And also to emphasise that the, the, she was writing this in 1925. So yes. to go back to your point earlier... She's looked at the calendar. She's She's looked at the calendar. Why has she done that? It's so weird to do that. You went, obviously, to your go-to reference. Well, I wondered how specific she was being about trains. Of course you did. It's very confusing, anyone looking up this stuff. Uh, And it took us a while to understand what was going on. Because she talks about there being a a, a decent-sized train station in uh, the village of Knights, uh, King's Abbot. Yeah. There isn't a train station in Cheadle anymore. Nope. Thanks they're campaigning to, to get one to, back. They're trying to open one again. Mm. There are still two train lines running through Cheadle. There's yeah. two train lines. And there was a time when there were two train stations, both called Cheadle. Confusing, eh? How confusing is that? Uh, so there's basically two r- lines running east to west that go through Cheadle. They basically go around the Abney Hall estate, they? Don't go they? around they either side of the Abney basically. Hall estate. One line goes from basically Liverpool through Cheadle to Stockport right, and then up to Manchester mm. the other line goes through the old Cheadle station further south the other side of Abney Hall and then goes down towards Stoke down on that line gotcha basically she talks about there being lots of trains she talks about them getting the train to Liverpool at about half past ten in the evening not really the case there are only about three or four trains a day to Liverpool from Cheadle okay at that, this time I, well I'm looking at the 1910 Bradshaws well, that's the earliest one I can, only one I can get at the library. Um, so it would have been roughly right. So they may have changed the timetables between 1910 and 1926, but it looks well, like... Well, they would have done because of the war. 
well, would they? I think they might. Have, why would they change it wholesale? Be, you know, you've got to imagine this timetable evolved over years. <laughs> Changing it would have been a big undertaking because they're all private companies. Right, so you've right, got to be right. slightly careful with it. They're, they're, you can get to Manchester and you can get to Liverpool. That's all so right. Kind of she works. hasn't quite got that right. But the times are not right. The times aren't quite right. But I'm going to give her a pass on that. Well, of course you are. Because you love her. Like the Christie. Kissing in yeah. the tree. And she's kind of made me question my own obsession with tame timetables. But I, I think... Wow, you like her that much? There is a link between the narrative and the timetables, right? Because Dr. Shepard needs... Plot spoiler, again, sorry, lots of warnings. Dr. Shepard needs to get the phone call that he gets at around 10 o'clock. Yes. And it needs to be from someone who's about to get on the train, on the train. to Liverpool. Yeah. So if there isn't a train to Liverpool after 9.30, that won't work. Although uh, Pierre Bayer... Yeah, uh, says the the phone call is unnecessary and uh, not relevant. No, well, he also makes the point that it's never mentioned again because mm. he goes. Doctor Shepherd goes into the house and says, "I had a phone call." Yeah, said the same for someone saying from Parker. He doesn't. And need Parker a phone says, call. "Well, it wasn't me." Yeah. And then it's never mentioned again. It's a bit. Well, of a, he doesn't. It's a bit need, of a hole. In the yeah, box. exactly. It is. I have to say, I'm quite. I, I, I'm quite admiring of her in terms of it being sort of very of its time in yeah. terms of the cultural references. It's all very good. So, for example, uh, one of the things that makes Hercule Poirot suspicious to the villagers, apart from his marrows and, and, his, his, and his, hair, his hairdresser, yeah. his, his whiff of hairdressing, is that he's bought a new vacuum cleaner. Yeah, he's bought a new vacuum cleaner. Yeah, so when was that? Because well, Caron hears it. I know. Well, very interestingly... Uh, there have been vacuum cleaners around for quite a while, but a yeah. domestic one that you can, you know, a, a sort of commod, um, consumer one. Yeah. Electrolux, 1921. So by it, it would so have been quite, quite ahead of the curve, quite new. So I think he would have had an Electrolux, and everyone mm. would go, what the hell is that? And then um, uh, Dr. Shepard um, and he have a conversation about speculation and losing money yeah, on Yeah, so talk shares. about the porcupine oil fields. Well, I looked that up as well and then found that there's a place called Signal Hill in California, mm where they, they discovered oil in 1921, mm. and they put so many uh, pumps on it that it was uh, described as Porcupine Hill because it had so many spiky bits of metal. But the Porcupine so then Signal Hill, was they found it in 21. Obviously, there was a massive oil rush there yeah. till 1923, and then it sort of calmed down, and, people, and, and, and the suckers came in and started losing their money. Okay, so that timing so, is so very good as well. So that's actually very good as well. There's a very, um, I think it's my least favourite part of the book, is when Dr. Shepard insists to have a Ma Yong party. Oh, I love and they, the Ma Yong And they have, a, they have a conversation. Oh, it's hilarious. Oh, oh it's so well done. I thought it was it's very like a play. Mannered. Very Oh, it's mannered. like a play. Oh, I yeah. disagree. Okay, I didn't like I'm it. I'm not having that. I didn't like it. It was full of narrative, necessary narrative exposition, with every paragraph ended with, your move, oh, I see you've done a two dragons or something. I thought it was because it, uh, very funny so, about the different characters getting annoyed with each other about him playing badly. It was brilliantly mm. done. Okay, we'll disagree on that. Yeah. But it was, in the 20s... A big deal. A massive fad. Yeah. Massive fad. This it's, is definitely 1926. Yeah. There's no question about and it's it. it's beautifully positioned in time. And it's, and it's very nicely done. And you can even work out sort of when the... Um, She's even, you know, where they find a wedding ring in the in the, in the pond, pond well, and it says it says March the thirteenth. Yeah, uh, March the thirteenth is a Saturday, so she's even got that right that yeah. they got married on a Saturday. Yeah, very good. She's, I'm uh, very impressed, actually. We're up against. It's a bit like reading that Sarah Waters book when you kind of go, we're up against a uh, yeah. uh, a superior mind. A here. superior mind, apart from uh, one demerit. Okay. 
Well, I gave her demerit for the train times. I'm giving her one because she says that Aykroyd is a man in his 40s. Right. In 1926. Who goes on to say, so he's nearly 50, goes on to say that he originally got married to a woman who's a dipsomaniac before the war. And she had a young son, Ralph Ralph. Payton. So he's around before the war. I think he says when he first, when they get married, he's seven. I think she actually says he's Mm. seven. And that also he uh, suffered from nerves from air raids as a young boy. So Zeppelin raids. Yeah. Yeah. So in the war. So this doesn't this is this doesn't work out. So this is 8 years after the end of the war this book is set. Yeah. So so if he was a boy in during the First World War and was around before the First World War. Yeah. He can't be more than late teens now. Yeah, whereas he, he's he's described in it as early 30s. Yeah. So he's early 30s and Ackroyd is late late 40s. Oh, so she's got that. Yeah, uh, but that can't be true. No. Uh, based on what Good happened before. Good spot. So I don't know why she hasn't just got sorted that out. She's perfectly capable. Well, she probably didn't have somebody in her life that was quite as pedantic as you are. <laughs> Certainly not the kind of thing that Archie's going to notice, is it, while he's off playing golf with Mrs Neely? I think she would have enjoyed that. As I said to you before, I think you and her sitting in a little cottage somewhere talking about train times. Would be, oh. It'd be me knocking on that the window saying, hey, what about the age of Ralph Page? dream. She also liked cream cakes, and I like cream cakes. Exactly. So would you would have both been in there and saying... Oh, God, your friend Tim isn't coming round, is he? Oh, God. (laughs) He's not going to talk about Ralph Payton again, With his beret. (laughs) If the good doctor is concealing the young man, what place would he choose? It must necessarily be somewhere near at hand. I think of Cranchester. A hotel? No. Lodgings? Even more emphatically, no. Where then? Ah, I have it. A nursing home. A home for the mentally unfit. I test my theory. I invent a nephew with mental trouble. I consult Mademoiselle Shepard as to suitable homes. She gives me the names of two near Cranchester, to which her brother has sent patients. I make inquiries. Yes, at one of them a patient was brought there by the doctor himself early on Saturday morning. That patient, though known by another name, I had no difficulty in identifying as Captain Patton. Um, I'm now, I'm now getting a whiff of Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sherry, <laughs> l'amour, why do you run from me? <laughs> Which I'm, I'm liking. Okay, good. <laughs> so we're looking for a hospital, a sanatorium, a sanatorium for the mentally unfit. Well, it's very so obviously around. In 1925, when she's writing this, yes, there's loads of hospitals yes. treating people with shell shock. No, all the invalids yeah. from the war, and yeah, then yeah. people with shell shock and PTSD. And yeah, all that. it was an emerging science, wasn't it? After yeah, the and, war. It, and she does say in the village, all the young men have left. Yeah, well, they're not around. They, they've not, they're, left. They left. They left. Yeah, they, they're they've left. left the earth. Yeah. So um, it's not very surprising if there are a number of sanatoriums around here, right? Yeah. But the ones that are I think candidates for what we're talking about. The the biggest hospital around Manchester yeah. and still is is the Presswich. And in December of 1922, that was renamed the County Mental Hospital. But you see, the thing about that, I think, is it was administered by the Lancashire Asylum Board. So why are they letting a doctor from Cheshire refer people to I a Lancashire f- hospital? Did they care that much about that at that oh, time? And well, you're the county 
County lines. County county <laughs> borders, man. All right, so, right. Are okay. Cheshire doctors allowed to refer to Lancashire hospitals yeah. in the 1920s? Also, yeah. Question. But, but too near a by, there is the Cheadle Hospital or the Cheadle Royal Hospital. It became the Royal Hospital in 1902. Now, it, was, it had 400 patients in 1928. Right. But it was a private hospital. It, well, it chose to remain private rather quite, than join the NHS. That's quite a good candidate then, isn't it? It is quite a good, but it's a bit further. It's actually south of here. So it's further away from Cranchester. Yes, that's yeah. right. Do you know what it is now? Why? It's part of the Priory Group. Okay. Well, you've probably been there then, haven't you? <laughs> well, I would have thought some of your Manchester United friends might have been there. <laughs> George George Vest would have been there, wouldn't he? <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Actually, the, the most famous inpatient I could find there, yeah. Arthur Ransom. Oh, really? Yeah. Had a bit of time in there. Did you have a bit of time? Apparently so. Booze or...? I, I didn't check up what it was. An excess of Lakeland Adventure. It was just over, overdoing it on Instagram. Yeah, too many swallows and Amazons. <laughs> <laughs> Ease and whiz. Ease and whiz. <laughs> as they Very call good, it yeah. now. But the one we're standing in we right standing now, right in we the ground, we're standing of. in a thing called Barnes Village, a development. Yeah, and Barnes Hospital is directly behind us, and a very amazing, impressive, amazing sort of Victorian hospital, pile. Yeah, right? this was a very active hospital here, and in 1925, yeah. the trustees accepted that they needed to be subsidised by the Manchester Royal Infirmary and take on more patients. Electricity and mains water supply were installed in that year, 1925. So before that, it was a very sort of remote kind of run-down... Just the kind of place where you might want to hide somewhere. Where you want to disappear. You should also be able to say it's got a massive clock tower at the top of it. It is a really, really impressive building, which you can see from the grounds of Avenue Hall. Yes, you can see the clock tower, can't you? And, and walking here, uh, we walked here from Avenue Hall to about 20 minutes, you can see the church in Cheadle. Yes, the so triangulation. All, it all works. And there's a clock at the house as well. At there the is. Hall. You can so see if you wanted to clock. have an alibi yeah. about walking, you, you, there's clocks everywhere. There's lots of clocks. You can just say, oh, well, I saw How them. could you two be so sure of the time? Well, well. there is a clock on the church. Church clock, hospital clock, yeah. hall clock. Yeah, <laughs> it's all, I'm I'm good. <laughs> It's no, a magnificent I like this. building. It's been converted into private... It's been surrounded uh, by... Uh, but the actual, the actual conversion of the main building is quite sensitively done, I would say. It's quite nice. It's an incredible building. then it's surrounded building. by all these slightly strange... It's beautiful. Uh, 90s. Do you think these are 90s? Arts and crafts. 80s, 90s, red brick kind yeah. of modern housing. But you are surrounded on all sides by the slipways and motorways for the Manchester Ring Road. So it's a slightly odd place. It feels, feels a bit remote, doesn't it? Well, again, a good place to hide away even now. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to disappear. What are you saying? If I wanted to disappear... You can check me in, have you? <laughs> and you can imagine again Agatha as a child saying to her sister, what's that over there? And they go, well, we don't go there. That's the That's hospital. That's where the hospital for the... For the soldiers. They're not right there. The soldiers. Yeah. Can you imagine her... That being quite a thing for a small a teenage girl. We see it from her bedroom window. Yeah. Very Fantastic, good. right? We are walking around inside Agatha Christie's mind, I feel. It's pretty good. Yeah. I can't believe that you're going to give this book anything other than a 10 in our rating system. No, I don't think I'm going to give it a 10. You're not? No. I think I'm going to give it... Uh, so we, we we rate books on... Uh, and, and, and hopefully people realise that this is done with both tongues firmly in our cheeks. But we give a rating for how curiously specific the book is. So mm-hmm. how kind of 
interestingly, are they playing around with dates and locations and how serious do they take that side of things? Yep. And we also somewhat laughably give a rating for artistic achievement, artistic merit, how good the book is, however yes. you want to describe it. I wouldn't give it quite a 10 for artistic achievement. I'd Would give you it not? a 9. Oh, okay. I don't. Why, why are you not giving it 10, given that you love it so and you love her so? I don't really, maybe I would give it a 10. Is it improvable? Oh, is that your main criteria? Yeah. No, no, I'm going to give it a 10. You persuaded me to go up. Yeah. I'm going to give it a 10. Fair I don't fact. think it's improvable. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a perfectly tuned mechanism. It's a clever and, book. And I love it. Yeah, and it's very readable and so, it's clever. Uh, I'm going to give it a 10. What would you give it? Well, I'll give it a 9. All right. High scores. Yeah, I'll give it a 9 because I'm a bit like Craig on Strictly. Is I don't get my 10 paddle out easily. I don't even know what those words mean, and it sounds obscene. Um, <laughs> but it's a very good book. It's a very and it very also good book. what I like about it most of all is the thing that is winding Bayard and the French up is that it's um it's a beautifully playful but and skilled uh, use of the genre of very knowing about the structure and and all that. Well, the, the which thing, I think is great. The thing that I. Uh, I really enjoyed about reading it again was how good her dialogue is. I mean, I, I think the way she yeah. tells the story through people talking to each other and not through exposition. Yes. This is why I disagreed with you about the Mahjong thing, right? Because it's not exposition. It's not like here's a here's a paragraph of prose telling you what's going on. You find out what's going on through people talking to each other. Mm. I think she's very witty. And we've been reading some other uh, detective fiction. Yes, I knew you were going to say this. And... Um, uh, particularly Dorothy L. Sayers. Bung ho! There's just, well, yeah, but it, <laughs> as there's, Lord Peter Whimsey would say. There's these weird things. There's, she does this weird, we'll talk about this in the Sayers thing, but she does this weird thing where people are basically talking to themselves. Yes. Which is nobody does, is weird. Um, and then she has these long pages of description, yeah. which is just boring. Yeah. Whereas Agatha Christie does it, I mean, and she does, she did, she did say at some point that um, she was, um, she likes to get straight to the dialogue. Yes. Obviously, likes to get straight to people talking. And, you know, arguably her most successful product, if you like, is actually a play. You know, it's the last uh, track. Yes, okay. So, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, think, I, think it, I think that's successful. Well, her language is very pared down and kind of modern. I think, as it you really say, is. It's, 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 what did Chandler make of her? Do we know? Uh, no, I don't. Hemingway? No, no, it's I Hemingway-esque, I would say. Well, that, that's interesting, as I said to you, that 1926 Hemingway's first yeah. uh, novel comes out. And uh, I don't want to make a claim for a... a about being like Hemingway, particularly, but that 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 trend towards pared down language, yeah. not too many fancy words, not too many current slang, and very direct and to the point. Yeah. Uh, she does she does well, do that. Actually, maybe that's why I had a slight reservation about giving her a ten because I kind of get the impression that it came rather easily to her. I mean, if you look at the number yeah, of books quick. she produced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I'm going to stick it with my ten. So ten and a nine. Ten and a nine. Now, curiously specific rating, okay. which is actually more interesting. Um, Always. The the first one is just an excuse for us to talk about the book. The second one, now, I'm going to give her a demerit of one for her train time slip. Okay. Other than that, You're it happy. works. You're the happy. dates work. I mean, the date stuff you described beautifully in the last one about her getting even the wedding day, right? Yeah. I'm giving her a nine. Okay. Um, ten and a nine ten, for me. Ten and nine. That's good. Mm. High scores. High scores. High scores. She's at the top table She's in the club. The top table. Isn't she? she? Definitely is. She's there with, with Waters and Le Carre. I'm going to go eight because yeah. I have a couple of other demerits. So obviously the train, the train thing's your thing. You don't care. You no, don't care. I do. I know. I take it on board. 
Um, but obviously, I've, I've pointed out the problem with Ralph Payton's age, yep. which I'm not happy about. No. Because it's easily fixed. It Why, is easily it, fixed. It, it, Why get that wrong? It's sloppy, as, uh, well, Roy Keane, as Roy Keane would say. I blame the cop- Sloppy. I blame, I blame her readers rather than her. For that. Uh, what, for that? Yeah. Okay, Someone anyway. Pick that up. That's wrong. And then also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add on to that the, 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 my concerns about that have been raised by uh, Pierre Bayard and the other French critics of uh, how, in fact, none of this works, that we've got the wrong murderer, well, that, that, it, that, that it's impossible for Dr. Shepard to have been the murderer well, with my based monsieur, on the facts with my monsieur, of the narrative. My, Professor Bayard hat on, I would say, yeah, but she knows that. Yeah, but it's, you know, but, but as I say, we're going to be curiously thing, specific. The whole thing is a trick about times and stuff. Yes, is is that is that therefore it's 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 not specific enough. Yeah, but hang on, the the way she plays with the people's heads around that is by being curiously specific about times and making this fake and lying, narrative, making this and fake li- narrative. And be, no, not lying, to being delusional. Well, you're giving you you're being a you're you're giving a fiction writer a demerit for not telling the truth. Well, this is this is the curiously this is the curiously specific. This is the curiously specific. It's not the delusional book club. Oh, really? You should you should see what some of the people are saying about us, mate. Um, okay, so you're giving her an eight. An eight, so still a very high score. Very high score. Those are big scores. Very high score. Big scores. It's so one of the top books. I, I really enjoy doing this. Yeah, and I'm going to be reading a lot more of the rest of going going forward. Oh, I read Endless Night on your recommendation. Well, that was the one we were originally going to do, which is a very book from good. later in her life. Yeah, um, which is also I very, enjoyed very good. that a lot. Very good. Yeah, and I think I might read the affair at Styles the first one because I want to read the first one. I want to read and then there were none because I've never read that, and yeah. I want to read Murder on the Orient Express. I've never read that either, even yeah. though I know the no. answer to these. And things. And then the other one was the final one. Curtain sounds really interesting. Yeah. Curtain sounds well. bonkers uh, because it is. You know, did you know it's it's based at Styles? Yeah, and it, but it's been uh, Styles has been turned into a care home. Yeah, which uh, hilariously quite a lot of these places in Cheadle. Well, they weren't all, turned over. Yeah, if they, yeah, exactly. If they weren't, got a care home behind it now. Exactly, yeah. exactly. She's so going forward again. Yeah, that's what I mean about about her describing Britain's progress through the twentieth century yeah. through through detective fiction. She's from, brilliant at it. From uh, from plutocrat hall to care home. Yeah, she's brilliant at it. That's yes. essentially Britain. Some thank yous for our Agatha Christie podcast. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Bix by Becker. Wouldn't we all? Singing the blues. That was the jazz you heard I love along that. with the steam train at mm. the beginnings of parts one and two. Mm. Uh, you also had a little excerpt from Agatha Christie's Life in Her Own Words, Radio 4 documentary, oh, okay. which uh, was amazing, actually. It was, uh, her, I think her grandson found some tapes in the loft, and it was basically the tapes that she'd made when she was doing her autobiography. I was kind of like, you know, to remind her what was going on and what time she'd made a loads of tapes. Wow. So it was her remembering her life. It was quite good. You also would have heard a little bit of French in there after our peer by our section. Not you. Not me. <laughs> I managed to find a clip of David Poirot. Oh, David Poirot. David, David Poirot. Suchet doing Poirot in the famous ITV series, but dubbed into French. So it so wouldn't that, be him. That was the big reveal scene in, uh, in ah. the, uh, Le Meurtre de Roger Ackroyd. Ah, uh, the big reveal scene between Shepard and Poirot is what you heard there. Would it be Acqua? Acqua. <laughs> we got to thank our usual um, Basie Loop. Yes, indeed. So that's uh, from the artist learning music on the Free Music Archive. 
Check it out. Um, it's called Trebek's Lament is the full track. Yeah. and um, It goes in unexpected directions after the uh, Basie Loop. It does. We, uh, the Basie Loop is a strange excerpt, so maybe even uh, the artist living music wouldn't recognise it. Yeah, it's <laughs> very interesting. Um, so uh, we're going to go say goodbye to Agatha Christie. Yes, you're going to be a bit sad about I that, aren't you? I'm a bit sad. I very much enjoyed that. Yes, you did. I developed a real fanboy attitude towards uh, Mrs. Christie. Yes, and I think it colours your relationship with uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, may I say. Uh, somewhat. I, I feel that once you'd met Agatha Christie, you weren't that interested in Dorothy L. Sayers. Well, yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, I liked maybe, it. Maybe, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we're off, to, we're off to the Fens next, aren't we? Very exciting. The Flatlands. Where there are bells ringing. Ding Over dong. the floodlands of East Anglia. <laughs> Join us.